0: word together. Um, anyone with very long memories might remember that I was here earlier in this year and preached the same passage. We're going to come back um, and look at some different themes in the passage. So last time I was here, we looked particularly at Hagar, and we saw God's concern uh, for his people, uh, that God is the one who sees us, even when no one else seems to care about us, even when we seem like we're forgotten or, or not wanted by the world, uh, the Lord is the one who sees us. And so you have those uh, names at the end of the chapter. You know, the God who sees, a uh, well of the living one who sees me, and uh, God hears. Uh, so that theme runs all through that chapter. God is deeply concerned for his people and notices us. Uh, he's the one who knows the number of hairs on a head. Um, he knows every sparrow and how much more he cares for us. But this morning we're going to come back and look at um, how God is working in Abraham and Sarah. Uh, so Genesis is working through this broader account with the promises to Abram and Sarah, and we're going to see. I uh, how this chapter relates to those promises. So how about I pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Father, we do thank you for the chance uh, to come and to look at your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us. Thank you that you have revealed to us uh, your glory and your faithfulness. Thank you that you're working out all things for our good through Christ. Lord, help us this morning to see more clearly that we can trust you. Lord, and may our hearts rest assured in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God helps those who help themselves. Now, we've probably all heard that statement. It's a saying that people throw around because we assume that if anything is going to happen, we're going to have to get to and do it. It seems almost natural to us as fallen humans to assume that you can't just pray and trust. You have to get to and make sure that you do something because God won't do it for you. In fact, apparently, this saying even goes back in in various forms to the ancient Greeks. All through history, people have assumed that if anything is going to happen good for me, I need to be the one who does it. Yes, maybe God will come along and help me on the way, but fundamentally, I need to make sure that I fulfill what I need. And as we look at this morning's passage, in many ways, it's a passage in which we find life under the motto, God helps those who help themselves. We're looking at Abram and Sarai, uh, particularly Sarai's uh, Sarai's actions in this passage. She doesn't explicitly say this phrase, but she seems to be convinced that if God's promises are going to be fulfilled, she needs to orchestrate a way for that to happen. She needs to step in in ways that God has not commanded, nor in which God would commend, uh, to make sure that his purposes come to fruition. Now, as we look at this chapter, it might be helpful to recap... A little bit of the context, we saw it in the kids' talk. Um, but at the book of Genesis, we began with the creation of all things. Uh, God created humanity in his image to share in relationship with himself. And all things in creation were good. A world perfectly ordered, humans perfectly satisfied in God himself. And yet humanity sinned and the curse came. Uh, strife and pain and death entered into our world. And from Genesis 3 through to Genesis 11, we see little glimmers of hope. But the big picture is humanity rebelling against their creator and receiving his judgment. In chapter 11, we find humanity trying to turn their fate around. The men gather to try to build the Tower of Babel. They think that they can overcome the curse by their own human effort. They can build a tower up to the heavens. But God thwarts their efforts. Our human endeavour will not be the path to true salvation. And so on the heels of that account, we come to the account of Abraham, or Abram, as he was known formerly. Uh, Abram was a man whom God had called and whom God had promised to bless in place of curse and through whom God had promised blessing to all nations. Through Abram and his descendants, God was beginning to enact his great purposes for our redemption. And so in faith, Abram followed the Lord, not having any idea what lay ahead of him. He walked out to a land that he did not know. And he was simply trusting that God would care for him and that God would fulfill his promises. And from Genesis 12 through to where we pick up, there have been a lot of ups and downs in the account of Abraham. But what we really need to know for this morning's passage comes in the first sentence of this chapter. Now, Sarai... Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Uh, Sarah had been barren and already uh, old before Abraham had been called. Uh, But God's promises were predicated on Sarah bearing a son. Indeed, back in chapter 15, the previous chapter, uh, God had just reiterated that all of God's promises will come through Abraham's descendants, descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, despite this the years just keep rolling on in Canaan and we're told in verse 3 of this chapter that the events are taking place 10 years after Abram had followed God's call to come to Sarah uh, to come to Canaan sorry so it's been 10 years of Sarai waiting for a son uh, 10 years of nothing happening 10 years of wondering what's coming of this promise and surely at that point you start asking some questions Sarai is not getting any younger. Now, where is this child? Humanly speaking, it seems completely impossible. It seems like things just aren't working out the way that God had said they would. Now, God's promises to this family, and more than that, God's promises for saving all humans, they came through Abram having a son, and that looks like it's not happening. And it's at this point then that Sarai decides, well, apparently God isn't doing anything. And so it's up to her to come up with a new path to ensure that these promises are fulfilled. Look again with me at verses 1 to 2. where we read there of Sarai's plan. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant it may be that I shall obtain children by her. As we look at Sarai's plan, perhaps the first thing that stands out is that it has some pretty clear problems on a moral level. Now, The practice of a woman giving her servant to her husband to act as a surrogate, it seems to have been accepted in the day. But the fact that that kind of practice was accepted does not make it right. Now, when you look at this passage within the broader context of Genesis... It's clear that this is what, not what marriage was supposed to be. Back in Genesis 2, you find that God had created marriage as the union of one man and one woman. And introducing another party into that union is a severe departure from God's purposes. And Sarai's plan is also problematic when we think of how it treats Hagar. It's as if Hagar is a mere object for Sarai and Abram to use to get children. And the language becomes uh, even more pointed in verses 3 and 4. We don't read of Hagar saying or doing anything. Instead, we simply read that Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband, and Abram uh, went into Hagar. Now, that's a euphemism for Abram sleeping with Hagar. In this passage, Hagar is not honoured as an image-bearer of God. Uh, She's used as a mere instrument to fix up what Sarai is convinced needs fixing in God's plans. And so as we think about Sarai's plan, it has some pretty serious problems at a moral level, but beyond the moral problems with the plan, this passage seems to focus on the underlying rationale that drives Sarai. Sarai's plan is hatched because she doesn't trust God to fulfill his promises in his way. Now'm looking at verse two, and just notice how Sarai frames the issues, and particularly what she says about God's role. And her own role. And Sarah said to Abram, "Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant; it may be that I shall obtain children by her." So, in Sarah's eyes, uh, what's God's role in all of this? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And in one sense, that statement is perfectly correct. God is the one who gives and withholds blessings, including the blessing of children. The world is not simply defined by natural causes. Sarai doesn't simply lament problems with her body or bad luck. She rightly recognizes that God stands behind everything. It is the Lord who has prevented her from having children. But for Sarai, this statement doesn't seem to be a confession of faith in the sovereign Lord. She doesn't say, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children and he has also promised a son to Abram, so I know that somehow he will bring this to fruition. She doesn't even say, well, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children and as hard as it may be, I'll trust him in the midst of that. No, for Sarai, this statement seems to be more of an accusation. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She seems to be implying that God has failed to bring about what he said. In fact, that he seems opposed to the promises. Now, God is not the one who can help us. He even seems to be the problem. And so what then is the answer? Well, Sarai says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Sarah's stance here is pretty clear. God has not given what was needed. He seems to be actively withholding what was needed, and so now Sarai is saying, well, we've waited for God long enough. Now we can fix this ourselves. I think the NIV translation is actually slightly more helpful here. It reads, perhaps I can build a family through her. Sarai's actions, she will do the building. Now, God's preventing it, but she will build the family. And when Sarah says this, it's not that Sarah has grand estimations of her own power. She doesn't know if she will succeed. She says, "Perhaps I can build a family." She doesn't know what's going to come at the end of this, but she seems she seems to be pretty desperate. And in her desperation, who does she turn to? Not to God. She's convinced He's not doing anything. Sarah will turn to herself and her own plans instead. And to be clear, I don't think this passage is suggesting that Sarah has fully given up on God altogether. She's not trying to secure her own blessings outside of God like the builders of Babel were. Her aim here is in one sense in line with God's promises. God has promised that blessing will come through the seed of Abram. Therefore, Abram needs a son. And so we're not told exactly what motivates Sarah, but It may well be that her goal is to see a son born so that God's promises can be fulfilled. And even in this endeavour, in some sense, Sarai continues recognising God's sovereignty in determining who will bear children. But it seems that Sarai, while in one sense longing for God's promises and trusting in him being sovereign, she is at the same time doubting that God could bring his promises in the ways that he had said. To Sarai, the promises seem to be in jeopardy unless she herself steps in with her own plans. God needs her to help him get this done, even though he didn't ask for it, and even though it's a way that doesn't seem to fit his purposes. As we look at Sarai, then, it's a little bit of a confusing picture. She is someone who seems to be looking towards God's promises, but who can't trust God to get them done. Someone who longs for God's blessings, but who thinks that they will need to engineer their own path towards those blessings. Doubting God's power to deliver and thinking he needs some kind of help from her. The thing is, we look at this picture, it's a confusing picture, but it's probably also a slightly familiar picture. Perhaps we too sometimes find ourselves longing for what God has promised. And yet we doubt that he will deliver it in the ways that he has said. And maybe this is true at a basic level when we think about our own salvation. Now, you long for a share in God's blessings and the joy of eternal life in his kingdom. And yet you find yourself thinking, well, do I need to somehow orchestrate my own way into that? God says to trust in his son. But sometimes we wonder, is that really enough? Is that going to cut it? Uh, maybe I should take things into my own hands. Uh, I still want what God has promised. I've not gone off to look for something else, but maybe I need to do a little bit more that God hasn't said to fulfill that. Now, this is the way Paul picks up this passage in Galatians. Now, Paul refers back to our account to warn Christians who attempted to rely on their own works and on their own human effort. Paul reminds us that God's promises are not ours to fulfill. God saves by his power, and we are to trust in what he has provided. Ultimately, we are to trust in the grace that comes through Christ, rather than striving to enter the promises through our own schemes and our own self-made righteousness. Righteousness. Or maybe in another way we find ourselves thinking like Sarah when it comes to things like evangelism. Why do we tell people the good news of salvation in Christ? Well, you wouldn't do that if we didn't believe that God saves. We wouldn't do that if we didn't believe that there was blessings to be received from the Lord. But perhaps at the same time we sometimes find ourselves doubting that God will actually bring about salvation without some extra engineering for us? And maybe you find yourself thinking, well, I tried his ways. I tried praying, I tried loving people, I tried telling people his word. It didn't seem like enough. And so we doubt God and we begin to think that maybe he's not doing anything and so it's up to me. Tragically, some people have decided that their hope lies instead in impressing people the way the world impresses them, giving a smooth sales pitch that ignores the difficulties of the Christian life, avoids the parts that seem to cause people problems. They think that the path God gave us won't work and God needs us to help fix his strategy for the 21st century. And of course it's easy for us to sometimes point our finger at, you know, the big church with the smoke machines and the concert, or the church drifting towards theological liberalism. It's easy to point our finger at all sorts of others. But to be honest, I feel this pull in my heart. I wonder if, oh, is there something else that I could do that, it's not quite honest, it's not quite saying things exactly how they are, but maybe that'll get me more of a hearing. And we all hopefully long to see people come to know Christ. We're committed to serving Christ and to proclaiming him in every opportunity and it's easy to think, well, maybe I just need to change a few things to make that more effective. I change a few things to make it more palatable. And that's not our responsibility. God will fulfill his promises in his way. We're called to be faithful servants and we are not called to change the way that God has set out for us. Well, we've seen then that Sarai has decided that God needs her help to step in and fix his plan. And so she's orchestrated this way for Abram to have a son. As we read on then, we need to see what comes of this plan. The first answer is, after all of Sarai's scheming, there's a child. In that sense, Sarai's plan seems to work. Abram agrees to give Sarai's plan a go. He takes Hagar. Hagar conceives and at the end of the chapter there's a son for Abram. Surely that means everything's good and it worked out the way she wanted it to. But of course there's a lot more that comes in this chapter than just a child. Now, Sarai's scheme also brings incredible strife. In the end of verse 4 we find that Hagar looks with contempt on Sarai. Now, Sarai wanted to build a family through Hagar But Hagar thinks the power has shifted. Hagar, now the mother of Abram's son, despises the woman who wanted to use her for her own ends. And Hagar, despising Sarah, leads to strife between Sarah and Abram. Now look with me at verse 5. And Sarah said to Abram, "'May the wrong done to me be on you. "'I gave my servant to your embrace, "'and when she saw that she had conceived, "'she looked on me with contempt.' May the Lord judge between you and me. In some sense, this seems to be a, a tragically predictable outcome when they bring this other woman into their marriage. It causes strife between Abram and Sarai. You get accusation and argument ensuing. And Sarai feels that she has been deeply wronged by Abram. Perhaps we wonder if this seems a little bit unfair on Sarai's part. She is the one who orchestrated all of this. We might be tempted to think her accusations just don't have any merit when she seems to have brought this on herself. But without minimising Sarah's culpability, uh, Sarah's accusations actually do hold some water. Uh, Yes, she is the mastermind and driving force of what has happened in this chapter, but she is also the victim of it. Abram, as her husband, was supposed to be leading in faithfulness And yet, tragically, like the first man, Adam, he chose to abdicate his role. And the parallels between this chapter and Genesis 3 are actually pretty striking. In both chapters, we read of a wife taking and giving to her husband, and of the husband listening to his wife. In both chapters, the man fails to exercise godly leadership in protecting his wife. And in both chapters, the result at the end is strife, And blame shifting. Abram is repeating the failures of Adam all over again by listening to his wife and doubting God's word rather than exercising righteous leadership in faith. As an aside, this passage also contradicts our society, which often sees consent as almost the sole criterion for whether you have wronged another person. We see this in our world today with particularly things like sexual ethics. If two people consent, then we're told no one is being harmed. But biblically speaking, it is entirely possible to sin against someone with their consent. Uh, Both people may be consenting, yet harming themselves and the other. The issue of consent is also coming up today in issues of euthanasia or gender transitioning or all sorts of other issues. People speak about informed consent as if that makes it okay to do evil to someone. Uh, It does not. It is possible to sin against someone with their consent, even with their initiative. It is possible to sin against someone who is insisting on what you're going to do. As Christians, our ethic is not defined by bare consent. It's defined by genuine love. By considering the welfare of the other, not simply the things that they are telling us to do. A love which is modelled on the cross. I think getting back to the main point of our passage, though, as we look at the result of Sarai's plan, and we find that she has sinned against Abram in dragging him into this scheme, he has sinned against her by taking part in this scheme, and so things are turning sour and conflict arises. And where do things go from there? Well, Abram fails in his leadership again. He abdicates responsibility and tells Sarai, basically, do whatever you want to Hagar. Hagar uh, Sarai mistreats Hagar to the point that Hagar flees into the desert. And so you get to this point, and it seems like this perfect plan of Sarai's is completely falling apart. Uh, Sarai might have thought that she could build a family through Hagar, And it might have looked for a moment like that was a success. But as you look at the aftermath of her attempts, it is full of pain and strife, not joy and restoration. Sarah may have been hoping to engineer her way back into blessing, but all we get in this chapter looks an awful lot like curse. And there's one final thing to note as we look at the outcome of Sarah's scheme. It actually does not bring the promise any closer. You might almost hope that at the end of this, you'd say, well, all of these terrible things have happened. There's been all of this strife. There's been dubious actions along the way. But at the end of the day, at least Abram now has a son and the promise can go on. But it becomes pretty clear that this son cannot be the one through whom God will bring his promised blessings. And God's promise was for blessing to flow to the nations as those nations came to bless Abram's son. But this son's relationship with those around him will look very different. Now look at verse 12. The angel is speaking there to Hagar about her son. He says, "'He shall be a wild donkey of a man, "'his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, "'and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. "'This is not the seed who the nations will bless "'and in whom they will find blessing.' Just as his conception brought strife, so this nation that comes from him will continue to be a people defined by strife. And so at the end of the day, all of Sarai's scheming brings nothing of value. In trying to find a different path rather than trusting in God, she not only brings conflict and strife and suffering, but Sarai can't achieve the things she wanted to achieve through that. Even the little she might have seemed to have achieved amounts to nothing, or in fact, worse than nothing, because of the strife that will continue. And so as we look at Genesis 16, then, we see this picture of life under the motto, God helps those who help themselves, and we find that it is an absolute disaster. Sarai's doubts lead to her scheming and trying to fix things, And yet the outcome is entirely negative. And so this chapter stands as a warning to us. We are called to a life of faith. We are called to trust God. We are not called to fix his plans or orchestrate orchestrate things for ourselves when our eyes don't see the things that he is doing. The pattern of scripture is not God helps those who help themselves It is instead, God saves those who trust in him. I think as we look at this passage as well, it's helpful to take a step back and see it within the bigger picture. Now, for Sarai there in Genesis 16, no doubt things looked pretty desperate. And we can probably sympathize with Sarai in that scenario. It seemed like that was the only way. It seemed like there were no other options and the promise would not come unless she bent a few rules or did a few things that didn't quite seem right, but seemed to be the only way through to this child that they needed. But with the benefit of the bigger picture, we come to see that all of this tragedy, all of this mess in Genesis 16, it was entirely unnecessary. God would fulfill his promise in his way. Sarai would, in fact, bear a son to Abram. The blessings were not dependent on her to find some other path. As we look at the bigger picture, we see quite clearly she should have simply trusted God to do what God had promised. And of course, this rings true for us as well. Sometimes we have a very limited perspective, and things can seem very desperate. And we're tempted to take things into our own hands. Maybe we even justify ourselves and say, well, it's, it's for a good purpose. We say there's, there's just no other way and it's, it's just a few little dubious things here and there. Pretty soon we'll get through them, they'll all be over and we can kind of forget that they were the dubious parts and go on with life as it was supposed to be. It's easy to convince ourselves that we can change things a few ways to get through difficult situations. But however desperate things might seem, don't do it. Trust in God. Taking things into our own hands, doing things that he would not approve of, will only lead to misery. Uh, Trust in God and his promises. He is faithful. He will fulfill his purposes. Uh, We can wait on him. Or again, thinking about evangelism that I mentioned earlier. And it's easy to see why people would be tempted to twist things and change things. I serve at a church down in, in Newtown in Sydney and sometimes it seems like nothing is happening and it seems barren. And you think, well, it's tempting to look for something else. And yet we need to look and see that God actually is building his church in his way. Even when I can't see people coming to faith around me, I look at Scripture and I know that one day There'll be people from every tribe and tongue and language gathered around the throne. There'll be myriads of people worshipping the Lamb. God will fulfil that. That's not resting on my shoulders. I am simply called to be faithful in the ministry he has put before me. Now, of course, none of this means we have to be idle or lazy. God gives us this incredible privilege to serve him in this world. We should be looking earnestly for every opportunity to serve him. We should be thinking carefully about how we set forward the gospel in ways that are understandable to our culture. We should be earnestly serving him in every opportunity. And yet we need to remember in the midst of that, that God is ultimately sovereign. God is ultimately working out his purposes. We are to carry out the ministry that he has given to us but we're not to write the plan ourselves. We must never think that God needs a little bit of help from me. God graciously calls us to be his servants in this world, but we need to remember that he is sovereign over this world. He is one who has planned out history from beginning to end. He is one who will fulfill all of his purposes and has guaranteed that for us in Christ. And so we serve God not in doubt, not thinking we need to fix something for him. We can serve him because of our confidence in his promises. We can serve in the way that he has told us to, because we know that he will do what he has said. And before we even think of the things we're going to do in serving him, we need to rest firm on the foundation that God himself is faithful. And we need to trust him before we do anything else. So let's pray together that God would help us to trust in Him. Father, we confess that our hearts are so often weak, our hearts are fickle. Lord, we confess that we are living for a brief moment, and in that brief moment, it's easy to get things out of perspective. Thank you that you are eternal. Thank you that you're working out all of your good purposes through Christ. Thank you that your promises are faithful. Help us to trust in you. And help us to joyfully serve knowing that you are doing your work through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.